0: Thanks for joining us for the How We Did It podcast. Mike Lesseter here from Farming Coon Magazine. Today, I'm with Lars Paulson of LaForge Systems, the North American presence of the company that he co-founded in 1991 with LaForge owner and inventor Hubert Defranc of France. LaForge supplies the hitches you see on the front of tractors. More recently, they've entered into implement guidance, which also puts their hitch on the backside of the tractor. I met Lars many years ago, soon after our acquisition of Farm Equipment Magazine in 2004, though I later discovered he and Dad crossed paths many decades ago when it came to the ridge-till farming practice. If one can take as much verbal abuse as I do from Lars and still call him a friend, well, you get the picture. I will say Lars is knowledgeable about many subjects, including a couple that actually relate to the tractors in the farm machinery business. But our interview in Minneapolis during the Farm Equipment Manufacturers Convention was different than the others in this series. Part comedy hour, part intervention, comments on how either of us ever found a wife, and too numerous to count jabs over our business dealings with one another. My wife and kids are even familiar with Lars's name. That is, he's credited for the jokes, only when my wife rolls her eyes, and my oldest son, who was told that Lars is the reason why we couldn't afford better anesthesia on a hand surgery. Sorry, Drew, blame Lars for that, if only he had advertised in that special edition of Farm Equipment. But Joe Kinsley's skillful editing today means that the podcast still includes a relevant farm equipment perspective for you. As always, big thanks to sponsor Osmondson Manufacturing at www.osbundson.com for supporting this podcast series. So here we go. The how we did it conversations with my friend Lars Paulson of LaForge Systems. Yeah, we're not playing this one straight, are we, Lars?
1: I hope not. I hope not. I probably. You guys don't have a lot of
0: history out on the company out on the web. No. No, not like some other ones that I've
1: done, where it's been right. easy to. Right. Yeah, I mean, is
0: that by design or?
1: Maybe some, but uh, we're also not as visible as some of the other ones. Somewhat humbled that you include me in this group. Of, no. I've, must be...
0: Uh, you were in doing a Midwest run this week, weren't you? Or last I week? I last week
1: I was. I have to go home sometimes, do business. Yeah. So I can pay my advertising budget.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta work harder, Lars. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. I think we're pretty good.
1: You're actually shooting video.
0: Yeah. Someday, you know, the podcast is phase one, so that's, right. that's what we're the the near term thing is. But we're collecting videos this whole time is because I have a dream of making a a documentary, a series of some sort on small business and farming farming equipment. So we don't we're collecting all the video right now so that we have it someday.
1: So that's for when you retire.
0: Well, I hope it's before that. It's before that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Before I forget, my thanks to your father for sending me a book. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, and he's very re- We're it. proud of him. Yeah. Yeah, we're proud of him with that. That's a special guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've got to find something else for him to do now so he isn't uh, yeah. in my office <laughs> complaining nice. about things all the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> what it is. Yeah, you need a curmudgeon to come out and do any research in Concord, California for a bit? <laughs> not really.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: not really. Good. I do want this one to be fun. Let's have some laughs. Let's well, I have anyway. <laughs> we can interrupt each other. We can tell some stories. You can tell your dirty jokes and the really bad ones. I'll clean up. Okay. So I'll yeah. try to behave. First question, Lars, is and this one is about as easy as they come here. Tell us about what LaForge is and when someone asks you, what do you do?
1: Well, first of all, like I said when you brought this up, the guy who should sit here is Hubert de who really founded La Forge as we know it today. At one time, there was a Mr. LaForge who started a company, a farmer, who got himself into sugar beet harvesting equipment in 1972, so that's the official founding of the company in Europe.
0: That was Mr. La, F- La Forge? That was Mr. La Forge, okay. Maurice
1: La in uh-huh. 1984. So we need to go. That's when they started concentrating on the front hitch concept. And now, if you say, what do we consider ourselves? We say we are tractor implement interface specialists. So anything, how you hook a piece of equipment up to a tractor, generally fully mounted. We don't deal much with pull-tap, but front hitches fit into that. And our guided hitch systems for the rear for implement guidance both have to do with how do the tractor and the implement interact with each other and how do you get them to behave the way you want as an operator. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do very very niche very niche very, right? niche very niche and that also uh, somehow affects how we market ourselves nobody will buy any of our stuff just for the heck of it or for you have to have an implement and you have to have a tractor we make neither one so we kind of follow around trends in in farming whether it's a need to combine front and rear implements there is a need for front hitch that's really driven by farming practices. When we can advertise, we are blue in the face. It's really hard to educate farmers from our point of view. We are not big enough, you know. The big guys, there and Case in Holland, they can do that to some extent. But for a company in our size, that's pretty hard.
0: We should try out that blue in the face things one of these days.
1: Yeah, I'm, I thought that was what you've been practicing for the last, for the last 15 years. <laughs>
0: Uh, tell me about the
1: history of the front hitch, the front hitch technology. So it's something that really started in Europe more than 50 years ago. I mean, when I was in college back in Europe, it existed. And the first guys who really got into it would be Fent and Deutz in, in Germany. I'm not sure Germans that are listening to this are going to complain about how I look at Germany, but there's a lot of farms that are in town, and they have a few cows in town. And then they have the fields several kilometers out, and they do green feeds. They go out and cut some green grass every day and drag it back to town to feed the cows. So they come up with this idea of putting a mower on the front of a tractor and a self-loading wagon on the back. And the guy can just go out and mow and load up the wagon and take it home in one pass. And those guys, they made a tractor, they made a wagon, they made a mower. So they could do a turnkey project sell the whole thing
0: so uh, now i want to ask you about your path okay
1: i was not on the ride from the beginning with the forge so hubert really got into the front hitch business and i ran into hubert in 1988 at the sema show in paris and he was showing Because you couldn't,
0: you didn't want to hang with the pack anymore, is the story.
1: (laughs) 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 I was uh, practicing my French, I guess, and wandered off and ran into him. He had a a display there with a front hitch and a front plow and stuff. And so I started thinking, I was in the business importing stuff back then. So why isn't anybody doing this in the U.S.? I didn't see really anybody doing front... And rear combinations. A couple of guys made things that were not really. You know, the three-point is Harry Ferguson's idea from 1926, that you can do more with a smaller tractor if you use the implement to get some traction. And it is a true interface. They were standardized. You have know, categories zero, one, two, three, four. That everybody is supposed to know. So it doesn't matter who makes the tractor, who makes the implement. It's a pretty slick working system. It's, it's well standardized. And what the guys were doing here, like Orthman was probably one of the most prominent ones, they they had their bean cutter for edible beans. They had it mounted on the front on something that was a little bit like a three point. It had three links like a three point has, but it was not done to Harry Ferguson's idea for meeting standards. But it was three points, and if you welded together or something else that had the same three points, you could use that for things. So that was probably the biggest niche that I saw where it was used, or you actually did something on the front. And then in California you had bedders or they bedded up for the vegetables that were front mounted. But they used different what we call trend arms, so it was more like loader contraption things. And no but nobody was doing true three points. So I thought that would be a Something a niche we could get into. Then starting to talk to Hubert, and he says, "Well, he really wanted to expand into the U.S. market, and he had already contacts with John Deere, was in the process of becoming a allied supplier for John Deere. He had a, I think by then he already had, who was about to get approval from John Deere for U.S.-made tractors sold outside North America, but he wanted to get in. You know, it was North America it was." was excluded from that agreement. So having a, an importer, so that's kind of how I viewed it from the beginning, as an importer. So we had it in 1989 at the, uh, what was then the California Farm Show in Tulare. It was the first time we showed. They sold two right out of the show. Hmm. Yeah, this looks like promising. So then you would wanted to actually have a dedicated entity in North America We came to an agreement, starting that up together. We went, uh, started up business first of uh, January 1991. I've been paying our bills ever since. Mm. Even even to (laughs) Lasseter. Appreciate
0: that, Lars. I'm gonna have to get that. We're gonna have to record my child's hand surgery on here. (laughs) Why he didn't get anesthesia at some point in here. (laughs) Yeah. So this happened really pretty fast. You, you met him yeah, in 88. and
1: Yeah. I met him in 88. And by January 1st, 1991, we were up and running.
0: What were you importing at that time?
1: I had a little company that imported specialty equipment, precision seeders for you know, seeding carrots and onions and broccoli and that kind of stuff. We did um, pneumatic. Fertilizer applicators for dry fertilizer. We actually, for a little while, did a tractor. The company isn't in business anymore. I don't think that has anything to do with what we did, but it was a tractor basically set up as a like a row grader. So you had you could have implement in front of the operator cabin. You could have it in front of the front axle, and you could have it on the rear. You, you had three. So it was little specialty stuff that. We tried to avoid compete with the big guys. My biggest competitors were guys like Solex and Gearmorat and although I was working with Geermour. Yeah, that was kinda what we were doing. Thought the front hitches could fit in that. Started up and the case dealer in Salinas sold, I think, about fifty units in two or three years. Just fell over as we said, oh. And what was happening is they were doing buried drip tape for drip irrigation and they do pretty much continuous cultivation. So if you destroy the whole crop on the front and you build a bed back up on the back in one pass, you're pretty sure it'd be right for the rip tap was in the first place. So uh, he sold a bunch of those. So it's a good example. I don't think that came about because of our age because they needed our age do what they were doing. You were there to respond to an
0: application
1: that they saw, right? Yeah. You know, Like I said, they, they had been bedding up on the front before, but they didn't use a three-point, so that they had a better tractor, and it was built on there as a better, and they couldn't do anything else with that tractor all year long. Beautiful, beauty with the three-point is when you're done with what you're doing, you park your implement, and you're going to do something else with it, or nothing, just carry your weights on the front. So um, yeah, we fell over that. The next kind of wave that we came into for the application was triple mowers, that's Came like late 1990s, early 2000. I think Krohn was the first guy that was interested in working with us. We did some trade shows with them. And we had their more on our age. Kuhn came along, and, and he got Klaus, JF, and Fella. They all now the majors, all mm-hmm. offering that concept. So um, they needed a hitch.
0: I want to back up to some history on you mm-hmm. as well. Tell me about growing up in Sweden, what life was like on the farm and what you dreamt to doing back in the day?
1: <laughs> so I grew up on a puny little farm, less than 50 acres, probably 40 some. We had about 10 milking cows, kept all the bulls, and 10 dozen chicken, a couple of sows, a dog most of the time. We would grow two acres of sugar beets, maybe five acres of potatoes, because you would do processing potatoes for starch and for the absolute company and then uh, sugar beets. We had a one row sugar beet harvester, I would say in 1960. We were probably the only one who had a mechanical harvester mm-hmm. around. It was originally built for horses. My dad converted it so you could pull the thing. Mm-hmm. Harvesting sugar beets is a really a miserable job. You pull them out of the ground, you put them on a row, and then you have a woman come and knock them off and put them in a pile. And then you're come with a truck, and then you have to load the truck by hand. That is a lot of work. So that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I like farming, and I like tractors better than cows. So I got myself a degree in ag uh, in mechanization.
0: And what did you think you would do with that pursuit?
1: My thinking was back then I was tired of growing potatoes and sugar beets and I, guess that's, I was looking at getting out, traveling the world, maybe work for FAO or something or grow bananas and coconuts, that kind of stuff.
0: Tell us how you ended up in the United States.
1: So I ended up in the United States as a sales support engineer for a plantar manufacturer, a Swedish plantar manufacturer. And the importer was Guillermo. So I was kind of assigned to Guillermo to help them get that going. And, and The planter was kind of interesting in that prior to that I lived in France and I uh, was running a forest tree nursery together with a person who luckily knew something about trees because I didn't know anything <laughs> about trees. <laughs> but I uh, worked on this, this planter that was relatively flexible to make it seed things like spruce and pine and the small, small tree seeds. So I was, into, there were no, nothing like that in the manual for how do you see this stuff? It was all for cabbage and broccoli and things. So I figured out how to make that thing work. I was living there in, in France and was, had a good life, southern France, I can recommend it, visit and living. Good food, good wine, nice people. And um, that was kind of a, a, a project on, I think it was a two year project set up that uh, forestry nursery, so when that went out, some guys from Delaval Corporation in Sweden called me because I'm originally Swede, said, hey, you got an engineering degree and you speak half a dozen languages because their main markets were UK, Ireland, Holland, Germany, and France, and I speak all those languages, so they say, hey, why don't you come over here and work for us? So I went to work for them outside Stockholm, Sitting in the office and traveling from one daughter company to the other. I never saw any farmers or any cows, really, just running around to meetings and writing reports and stuff. And that's not really my style, so a little ad for somebody looking for a sales support engineer. There's a planter that I already knew from behind, so that's how I got that job. And um, California sounded like a nice place to live, and Stockholm, we had snow up to the Windows and scratching your windshield every morning and battery dead in the morning. California, you don't have that. So that's where I went.
0: Were um, you married at that point?
1: I was yeah. married at that point. Yeah. Still on my starter wife. Mm.
0: <laughs> you did well for yourself. I, I got to <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> you think so?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah, I met her in college in Holland. we so have okay. been together for a long time. Yeah. Long, long time. So they say being married is like having cable TV with just one channel.
0: <laughs> yep. You're lucky to get that channel, Liars, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. well. and, and by the way, you got to give me some more dirty jokes to tell my wife because she she's familiar with the Liars, Liars collection. <laughs> we'll talk about Hubert, and you, you've introduced me mm-hmm. to him before. We had dinner in uh, Jacksonville a few, oh, yeah. few years yeah. ago, if you remember. Yeah. Tell me about his story and how he got into La Forge and, yeah. and some of how he got to where he he's, is today. He's
1: a more interesting individual than I am. Very similar background from a small farm in northern part of France. And uh, he came up with this idea that you could have a plow on the front of a tractor. As a teenager, he did prototypes by backing up with his dad's tractor. And he tells me he backed up for hours and hours and hours before I figured out how to do that, because if you don't have a mobile plow front or rear, you probably don't figure out a way to do it not in furrow. And pretty much everybody in Europe plows in furrow, so you put one set of wheels in the old furrow, and if you have the front and the rear plow, then you put the gauge wheel of the front plow in the old furrow, and you drive the tractor in the furrow that the last moldboard is making on the front it becomes an in-furrow plowing setup except the front plow is actually kind of on land. So you do flip plows, reversible plows. So when you turn around, the front plow has to, from being here, not only has to flip over, it has to be there when you go the other way. So it takes a little mechanism to make that happen and without uh, getting screwed up every time. So he got a patent from that. On that, I think he was 16 years old when he got a patent on that front plow. That's kind of part of his folder of patents that he has mm-hmm. gained over the years. He has quite a few patents. So then he, he peddled that patent to some plow manufacturers in Europe. And I think there's probably three or four left that still make front mount plows. But for a while, he was, every time there's a plow, there was a little check going to yours.
0: Mm-hmm. So he had came up with this invention and sold the manufacturing and distribution rights to another
1: Yeah, company. for the, the plow he did. Yes, he did. But that made him interested in front mounting of stuff in general. By some kind of coincidence, he ended up doing a project during his study time at the factory, at the Laforge factory. And Mr. Laforge had offered him a technician to help him to weld and do things. He was doing an automatic sampler for sugar in sugar beets because The way they take samples usually is at the the sugar factory, and they take that in the corner of the load, and that's not really a a representative sample for a whole field. So he had this idea, and um, eventually they got in a discussion, as people do in France, and Mr. LaForce told him, if you think you can run this company better than I can, why don't you come and do it? And uh, he started working there. eventually became the owner. So and then the way the sugar beet equipment worked that he mounted a, the foliator for the sugar beet on the front of a tractor and had a had a digger on the back. So it needed a some kind of a three point hitch on the front. So the first LaForge front hitch was built in nineteen seventy nine. we're coming up in fifty years now, yeah, pretty soon. It was a little different from the Germans, the the, the Deutz and the Fent guys. A mower is really the nicest thing you can carry around out in the field it usually sits on springs and it's just floating out there as opposed to a sugar beet defoliator that pops and rattles and shakes and so you need a stout or hitch not to speak about if you're going to plow with it you need a stout hitch and uh, we run into that all the time even now we get situations and how much can it lift well if you sit in the yard and stand still, you put enough pressure on the cylinder, you can lift all kinds of stuff. But if you're actually going to push something, that's when you need some beef in your stuff. So uh, that's kind of where La Forge has prided itself over the years, that we uh, build stout stuff that lasts. Mm-hmm. And probably also why we have been relatively successful in North America, in that we are a little tougher on equipment here than Europeans are. Some of it has to do with the quality of the drivers. There are a lot of owner operators in Europe. We'll get back
0: to the conversation with Lars in just a second, but first a word about Osmussen Manufacturing for their continued support of our time, travel, and production of these farm equipment stories as we enter the final leg of the series. Their history dates back to 1903. Visit them at ww.osmondson.com. And a thanks to LaForge as well, who has been sponsor of every one of our annual precision farming dealer summits since we started it back in 2016. And now back to the conversation with Lars. What year did Hubert buy LaForge? I would
1: say it's 84.
0: You have three facilities in the United States, correct?
1: Yeah. So we started out in California because that basically because that's where I was at at the time with my uh, import business that I had before. So it really started out as a, La Force Systems Inc., which is the North American company. It started out as a one-man operation. With me unloading trucks and loading, farming, loading trucks and demonstrating and driving around and doing stuff. Then I Check out more information. got my family involved in it. Kids started getting a little older, so I have two certified forklift drivers that put that on their college applications. Mm-hmm. And um, business started in the 90s to become more spread out. In the very beginning, we were just on the West Coast. Especially snow removal made that happened. It makes sense to have a snowblower on the front. It's supposed to back up. A lot of people get tired of backing up with snowblowers. And we also got into business on the East Coast, especially crops in New England and the Southeast. So the French were thinking about getting something more central for distribution point of view. And we, we didn't want to start building a factory from scratch. We're looking to buy a company somewhere in the somewhere in the Midwest that were already up and running and doing bending and welding like we do and machining. We didn't really want to get into equipment manufacturing because it makes you a competitor of whoever I mean that's why one reason why we didn't go with importer distributors. They tend to be carrying a, a line of hay equipment. Well then you become the competitor of all the other hay equipment manufacturers because you are seen as part of their business. So we found this company called Brown's Machine, uh, Brown's Machine in in Cedar Falls, Iowa. On a map from France, looking at it, it looks to be nice in the middle of the country. We, all our three point systems are built at the factory in France. We take them in by ocean containers. The quickest way and the smoothest way to get them to Iowa, is through Halifax, from Nova Scotia, take a train from there to Chicago, and then a truck from Chicago to Iowa. So um, that's part of why I have gray hair is the transport challenges being located where we are. But you know, it's it's nice to have a facility in North America with a factory back up. So we moved. Warehouse over there, A warehouse facility, there's people there to take care of shipping and receiving. And our um, Dynatrack Classic Guided Hitch Systems, they are made there. And that is a, a North American product where the volume is really here.
0: Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So is there a third location?
1: In Iowa, we, technically there are two. So we, we, bought, so a, we bought a company. So, Brunt's machine was located in Cedar Falls, and uh, we needed to expand it somehow. And it turned out it was more advantageous to build a brand new factory. So we did that, and that happens to be in Waterloo. As far as the Waterloo and Cedar Falls operations go, they are kind of one. It's like having two buildings in a in a yard. So you know, some stuff some stuff is. Made like main of the CNC machines are in the Waterloo mm. facility, so stuff that needs to be yeah. run through that goes there. But it's really the punch machine and the Waterloo is operating as one. The factory in Waterloo is really kind of a miniature copy of what we have here in France. So we can make everything we do in France we could make here.
0: What are the manufacturing operations that would, we, we would see in Waterloo?
1: I mean, it's like any equipment manufacturer. We get plates in and tubes, cut and weld, and machine, assemble and paint. Paint and assemble, depending on the product. And then, of course, we have a factory in France, two distinct separate mm-hmm. operations in France.
0: So is there something technically challenging about the front hitches that you chose to bring them in from France rather than make them here? Or is it another issue? Or? It's,
1: it's the sales volume. It is infinitely higher in, in Europe. The take rate, there are take rates in some areas that are like 50%. Half the tractors have a front hitch. In US, it's like single digits. Is Shipping a- cost is not really a big issue. You can get a lot of front hitches in a container. And basically, this thing that Get volume, you can Mm -hmm. get significant cost advantages.
0: You're kind of a frequent recipient of the AE50 awards,
1: Mm -hmm. correct? Right. uh, something like nine now, total, over the years. We also tend to get awards in Europe. I think awards are more valued by customers in Europe than here. Especially the AE50 award, you get some peer recognition by getting awards.
0: When you look back at the product innovations that have come out in your time, going back to 1991, what are you most proud of?
1: What I'm most excited about right now is our Dynatrack setup. That is something that makes so much sense, and you don't really have to change the management style or of the farm. The problem we had with Front hitches is that you have to find two things that you can do at the same time, at the same speed, and the same width. Farmers don't think like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we do this and then we do that, and this is faster way to do this and that. But the precision positioning of seed and and nutrients in depth and distance between in all directions that makes a lot of sense, and. Farmers spend a lot of money on getting auto steer on the tractor. So you get RTK and you get sub-inch accuracy on the tractor. Well, it's nice to know where your tractor is at. But if you're gonna be sub-inch, there are little things that the tractor does that easily moves your implement off way more than an inch. There's little things people don't think about. You go on the side hill and the tractor will crab like this. The implement is gonna be even further off. Or on the side hill, your lower wheel is going to be compressed more than your your up side wheel. Well, then the tractor is no longer parallel with the ground. So if we're going to work with these kind of accuracies, what is unique with what we do, that nobody else does, is that we couple the implement free from the tractor. The tractor calculates the ideal guidance line. And then we make sure that the tractor is not Pushing the implement somewhere, and the implement isn't pushing the tractor somewhere. And especially now with the the three-point mounted systems, you now it's we really, really catch mo. You get an, in, an intelligent, quick coupler on the back, and it can move in all directions. And what is moving it is the implement. It doesn't move the tractor; it moves the the, the quick coupler. The, the un, um, the interface between the tractor moves that so that you stay, the implement is actually going to be more accurate than the tractor mm-hmm. by doing that. And that's, it's something you can use in almost all crops. You can, especially in, if you use GPS as your signal and you record, then you know exactly where your seed or seeds are when you put them in the ground. And you can go in and cultivate before the plants come up or in going along with your dad with things like strip-till. You can strip-till in the fall and put in your, your nutrients. You know exactly where your rows are. and You put your seeds, you want them seeds inch off, you put them on the inch mm-hmm. off, and you know where they're at. That is something that's exciting.
0: How did that development and invention come to be?
1: That comes really from Hubert and the design of the, of the front hitch system where you also have to no, what is the tractor if you do this on the front, what is the tractor going to do? If you have something on the front that doesn't have like you have a white toolbar and some of the shanks go down a little deeper, then that's where the tractor's gonna go. And you can fight it for your steering all you want, but that's what's gonna happen. So you get an intricate knowledge base of exactly the how the behavior of the tractor influences the implement and the implement influences the tractor. And you see, you know, you can tow it by the hand. Or by the rear, you have to figure out a way to uncouple them, both this way and that way, and this way. So he came up with a real nice patent.
0: So in, in what are the the best applications for that that you see here in North America? Who's buying them?
1: So a simplified version of that is what we call a Dynatrac classic, which works on toe behind implement, where you don't need to worry about this so much. But right? you, you steer the implement with the tongue rather than trying to steer the wheels. So if you steer the wheels from the implement you have to shove the shanks that are in the ground sideways somehow. So you're fighting that all the time. If you steer with your tongue, that's just like it will follow you like a wagon. And that's taken off in corn and soybeans. Even in Wisconsin. The I think I mean, right now probably the leading state is Nebraska for some reason. We have sold some in Wisconsin. So basically, we're in the Scorn Belt, Iowa, Minnesota, Illinois, Ohio.
0: And you've been working with us with regard to the Precision Farming Dealers Summit and have come to the Strip Till, National Strip Till
1: Conference. Yeah, this is right up to this, exactly what it's intended for. And getting back to this about me being alone, we hired Kyle Freischer, a really good guy who's kind of taking care of eastern part of the country now. He lives in Illinois and he used to work for Orthman. Mm-hmm. Came highly recommended and hasn't disappointed us. And um, he has taken the guided hitch setup kind of under his wings. That's his, his shtick.
0: What's a little known fact about LaForge? What what would people our readers or our listeners be surprised to know about? your company.
1: Maybe that there are actually French engineers. It's not just cheese and wine. There is uh, actually some guys with brains there. Mm -hmm. I think we see that quite often, that people are surprised. And I say that I'm not even French. What's the size and scope of the operation over in France? It's bigger than it is here, but it's definitely considered a, a small company. Now, in the little niche of front hitches, we are relatively big, but in Europe we have 20 competitors.
0: So you've got 20 competitors in Europe, but only a few here in the States.
1: The three points on the implement end are standardized. So everybody knows what the category two and the category three, three point is. But on the tractor side, it's all different. I think we have something like 20 different, just for John Deere, eight series tractors. Depending do you have suspended axle, non-suspended axle? Do you have a Tier 4 engine, interim Tier 4 engine, or a Tier 3 engine? It makes all differences. uh, So if that's not your core business, there is no way a sales guy can stay on top of that. And if you don't discover it till the guy has spent 15 hours in the shop trying to install it.
0: What you just described, there are 20 different configurations (coughs) on a single tractor. And thinking about what you do in your very lean operation, Mm -hmm. I think. It'd be fair that you say LaForge Forge in U.S. and everyone thinks of you.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, like I've done this now for 30 years, so yeah. people recognize my accent over the phone. So, but Plus you have
0: an attractive wife that you bring to the farm shop. Oh, is that
1: what, you, is that what you're chasing? <laughs> that you, work,
0: you work to death in the mud fields of Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a picture of that. <laughs>
0: Yes, there is. But how did you handle that with bringing, bringing a new product into the States, having multiple configurations? You have a thousand different dealers? Yeah.
1: So, yeah, we have right now, I think we have 1,100 open accounts. With wow. The, yeah. So, we are an ally supplier for John Deere. But, I mean, we do the other major guys also. Mm-hmm. But we don't do Chinese tractors and compact tractors and that kind of stuff. But it is one reason why we don't use importers, for instance, imported distributors. Because it's extremely challenging to keep the right stuff in inventory. And you have to bring, the, the factory has a month lead time, and then there is a lead time of a month just to ship an ocean container across. So you have to sit that far ahead in your forecasting and getting the right stuff in inventory is very challenging and you hate paying air freight for these things that are two, three thousand pound piece. So there is no reason to have importers because having one big inventory or one inventory is challenging enough. So we decided to do it from one generally. Yeah, there are some bad apples out there, but the thing is with, if you have a specialized product, the guy knows that he will eventually need a spare part. If he didn't pay his bill the first time, he's not gonna get any parts. Mm. So um, I generally say, you know, I don't usually worry about credit apps and stuff, if they are. You look them up on the internet and they see the, what the building looks like in the picture. Then I say, you know, if you don't pay your bills, I come and visit you and I have, yeah, extremely few mm-hmm. non-payers over the years. I think I've lost like 2500 bucks in total in 30 years. Oh, yeah. Doing well. Yeah. That's that, that side I'm proud of.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's say you, you take a dealer call. How many configurations can you personally walk a dealer through?
1: Well, so a dealer calls and he wants a hitch. What she's used to is the rear hitch. All they worry about on the back is how much can it lift? Because there has to be some really strange thing if you're going to drive away with a tractor and the hitch is still stuck on the implement back there. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna happen, but lifting, that's a challenge. On the front, you know, that's not the that deal. The meanest thing you can put on the front is, is a dozer blade. It has no give in it. Guys push silage, yeah, I guess, uh, typical Wisconsin guy, yeah, I'm just gonna push some silage and do light hitch. Oh, and the dose plate only weighs, you know, 1,500 pounds. Said so I don't make anything that lifts less than 6,600. So the lifting is not the thing. The thing is you push silage, and then you back down, and you happen to catch the corner of the blade out in the concrete wall. Mm. That goes the hitch, if not the tractor. Mm. And that's kind of stuff. So when the dealer calls, first thing, what is he going to do with it? And you're surprised how many dealers have no idea what it. Oh, uh, he just wanted a hitch. He saw that somewhere in the picture, he wants a hitch. So, most tractors, we have like three hitches, a good, a better, and the best. The guy rather drives a Cadillac than the Chevy, he's gonna get the best one. They both do about the same thing, but he's never gonna come back and complain. And we probably end up about at least 50% doing the middle one. Mm-hmm. Especially on the on the mowing side, we have most tractors a pretty nice uh, unit that you can fold up if those guys have a loader, you fold it up and uh, you can drive into your loader. So yeah, I mean like there, there's thousands of different combinations you could come up with if you say how many tractor models are mm-hmm. there?
0: I'm Jack Simlick of Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. If you want to be more successful in Precision Ag sales, service, and support, join us for the annual Precision Farming Dealer Summit, co-located with the National No-Tillage Conference. Check out more information at precisionsummit.com. Most of our listeners or readers here are going to be North American. You have a global perspective that you, you bring to this, of course. What do you think the ag market in Europe and the ag market in the United States doesn't doesn't know or recognize about the other?
1: You know, there, there is a misconception on both sides for how subsidies work. And I am not a specialist in, in either one, the European or the American, to understand exactly how it works. But I know that farmers are protected in a way that no other group of people are on both sides in one way or another. And uh, I think it's exaggerated somewhat how much subsidies American farmers think that Europeans get, and vice versa actually. But there there are, are some things like trade barriers that come up all the time. For a while, there was a serious discussion about in Europe they had this c e marking of equipment that it is uh, approved, and you were company you self audit your that put that sticker on there and you are not going to be able to sell your equipment if your bolts and nuts were not metric. I think they kind of stepped away from that but those are little things what Europeans do not like American meat that is hormone-treated. They don't allow that. And that is a issue of some discussion. Be- Roundup is another one that comes around.
0: What would be one of the things that, something that you have to remind Hubert on, on the things that he may be wanting to do or is frustrated about here in the United States, and you have to say, hold on a second, Hubert, this is, this is the North American market. This is what you need to understand. What would some of those things be?
1: One that sticks out is how much we spend on
0: advertising. <laughs> you mean so so little that you spend on
1: advertising.
0: Is that <laughs> like what you this. said? <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. You wish. Well, I mean, Hubert, I mean, he comes here almost five, six times a year. To watch the, the Iowa operations, he goes to Iowa all the time. And so I don't really have to remind him of that much. But something that is different in general here is, especially on the west coast, how much many hours we spend on equipment a year. That is way different from mm-hmm. what they do in Europe. If you take the in the Midwest, you have the width of the equipment. That is way different from what they do in Europe. Which was an argument for us on the front three-point thing, okay? There's only three ways you can be more efficient with a tractor. You can go faster, you can go wider, or you can try to do more than one thing at the same time. And you can only go so fast, and life expectancy of a shank in the ground goes down by 50% for every mile an hour that you increase your speed, plus your accuracy tends to suffer from that Mm -hmm. and you can, even here, you can only be so wide. Eventually your stuff gets so heavy, you can can fold it up, the folding crap gets so heavy it gets out of sight Mm -hmm. and expensive. So the combining passes we thought would be a right idea, but still after 30 years hasn't really taken off. There are special things they do with the front hitches that are not really the cutting down on passes. One sector that I forgot that's come up after we talked about the triple mowers that is really coming strong now, on both on, on front hitches and on the rear-guided hitch, is the organic growers. They run uh, the rolling crop crimpers. Mm-hmm. Well, it's typically something you should do before you drive over the stuff, because the, the crimper is not going to work in your tracks, mm-hmm. so they need a front hitch and they do a lot of passes through the field. They use GPS for their planting, they can come back and cultivate, and they can spray without crop damage. That's really a, a sector that's coming strong for mm-hmm. us. And you might not always agree to the philosophy of organic in principle, but growers can make money doing that, mm-hmm. why not? And They pay their bills, why not work with them?
0: We're doing a, doing a study of some opportunity in cover crop Mm-hmm. Right now, and I imagine that crimping that cover crop yeah. would probably be an application that you yeah. see some promise in. Mm-hmm. It's it's slow here for you after 30 years, you know, looking back 30 years ago. But what do you think the next 10, 20 years looks like for application of a forage?
1: I mean, there is steady growth in what we are doing. You know, there's some talk about these guys that do other vehicles than tractors and when they go autonomous vehicles, the Canadians come up with a deal that they have. I still think the tractor is going to survive for another 20, 30 years. Um, It's still a versatile vehicle that does a lot of different things. It can stand still and power stuff. It can now run fairly fast for transport and it's adaptive to very much anything and it's been become a comfortable working space for the operator um, so different ways of attaching stuff mm. to it it's going to be a need for it going forward challenge will remain for us as a specialist in what we're doing to stand apart from the majors so that there is still a reason to for us to exist.
0: That's a nice segue into a a question that I'm asking for this project, this series.
1: Is there a right or wrong answer?
0: I'll tell you I'll let you go, and then I'll tell you it's wrong afterwards. <laughs> that um, it, this whole series is about innovative specialty mm-hmm. manufacturers like yourself and all the other ones that we've we've done. Um, tell me what what life is like for the American farmer if we don't have this strong specialty supplier to the ag market. What what would it be like? You know, to
1: remove it for a moment. Well, I mean, pretty much all significant innovations that you can think of have come from small companies and later been adapt- adopted by the bigger guys. So if we disappeared, innovations would, would stop. Do you think the farmer when...
0: stops to think about that?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of our small companies started out as farmers, so in one way or another, so farmers don't stop thinking. They come up with solutions for issues that they encounter. And if it is a good enough solution, they can make a company out of it. And uh, I don't think that would, would ever stop. I mean, I, I think we are an essential part of the whole picture. and We all fit our little niches where we're at. and We try to stay alive. Mm-hmm best as we can with honesty and integrity and a smile on our face.
0: Your smile usually comes only after I've endured a beating. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> I have so much respect for you.
0: I, I've i told Darren this. I, I, I don't handle any accounts anymore, but I handle yours because, well, one, I enjoy working with you, but two, I, I feel like you could Capable of educating me on every call that I take, I get no, really. smarter. <laughs> on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're making me blush. What makes us kind of special is that we have been around doing this for 30 years here, and not working out of Europe like a lot of other Europeans do, and have a rep over here. And you need some spare parts, you have to wait for three months to get it from Europe. And we do speak half as decent English. And uh, I think that's what sets us apart. We have, like I say, 1,100 dealers with open accounts right now. Another 1,300, 1,400 probably have contacted us one time or another, but we've never been able to close a deal, so they have never gotten set up an account, but they are in my CRM system. Mm. So. There is sales support, warranty support, everywhere. So for a small company like this, I think that is a valuable asset to have. And uh, I don't really know any dealer who is mad at us, so try to support them and support the farmers.
0: Yeah, I've never heard a a bad word said about you, other than in our office.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, Most of that was from Darren. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, sure.
1: You know, one
0: thing I just thought of though as you were saying that um, a lot of the large dairies I live in Indiana, a lot of the large dairies, the ownership is Europe, you yeah. know, Dutch, places. does do, do you find that to be is that beneficial to you having? Yeah,
1: it is. I mean, I speak Dutch, so I, I get some business coming my way. So, and, I mean, it helps in that. You negotiate
0: like a Dutchman. <laughs> yeah. you know but it's what? not really negotiation when he gets whatever he wants. Yeah. <laughs> but I, think I, I got what I was looking for yeah. today. Thank I'm you glad. for doing it. I appreciate taking the time. It was a fun was fun en- one to do.
1: Entirely my pleasure. I'm telling stories to Mike.
0: Thanks to Lars for taking the time out for this interview, and another word of thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production as we wrap up phase one of this interview project. You'll find them at www.osmundson.com. And a special thanks to Darren Foster for the on the road recording work, and once again to Joe Kinsley here at Lesseter Media for his exceptional editing particularly on a recording like this that originally had as much personal jabbing as it did legitimate farm equipment talk. So till next time, I'm Mike Lessiter of Farm Equipment, Precision Farming Dealer and Strip-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipments Entrepreneurs.